Well, we'd like to welcome you all to Sunday service. My name is Nayaswami Anandi, this is Nayaswami Bharat, and the talk this morning will be given by Badri Matlock. We want to especially welcome those of you who are guests and visitors and also joining us online. And if you're here at the temple for the first time or at Ananda for the first time and you want to know more about what's going on, we have a greeter at the front desk who can answer your questions and also an invitation there to two of our very special Christmas events. So we hope you can join us for those. Um, I'd like to begin with a reading from Rays of the One Light, which are weekly commentaries on the Bible and the Bhagavad Gita by Swami Kriyananda. This week's reading is, what is it to fail spiritually? Truth is one and eternal. Realize oneness with it in your deathless self within. The following commentary is based on the teachings of Paramahansa Yogananda. The first passage is from the Gospel of St. Matthew, chapter 25. Jesus tells the parable of the ten virgins, five of them wise and five foolish. They await their bridegroom, the Christ consciousness. The wise virgins keep the oil in their lamps, symbolic of their devotion, lit through the night. The foolish virgins placed no oil in their lamps. These foolish ones are like the average devotee, going through the motions of outer ritual, but keeping no fire of love burning in the heart. When the bridegroom's coming is announced, the foolish virgins realize their mistake and hasten out to purchase oil. During their absence, the Christ consciousness comes and embraces those who have been awaiting him with devotion. The foolish ones, by their lackluster devotion, are not accepted by him. Watch, therefore, Jesus told his listeners, for you know neither the day nor the hour wherein the Son of Man cometh. In Autobiography of a Yogi, <clears throat> Paramahansa Yogananda describes the foolish virgin consciousness he encountered in the Mahamandal, Mahamandal Hermitage, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> he stayed in as a young man in Benares. I was pleased, he wrote, that my new home possessed an attic where I managed to spend the dawn and morning hours of the ashram members knowing little of meditation practices thought I should employ my whole time in organizational duties. They gave me praise for my afternoon work in their office. Don't try to catch God so soon. <clears throat> this ridicule accompanied me one of my early departures toward the attic. Later, during meditation, I felt lifted, as though bodily, to a sphere uncircumscribed. Thy master cometh Today, a divine womanly voice came from everywhere and nowhere. This supernal experience was pierced by a shout from a definite locale. A young priest nicknamed Habu was calling me from the downstairs kitchen. Mukunda, enough of meditation. You are needed for an errand. The divine mother's words were not spoken for the benefit of that priest, the foolish virgin, but for Mukunda, 
the wise virgin, for this was the day his guru, Sri Yukteswar, came to him. Grieve not, friends, if you feel that you have been foolish. No error is forever. Someday, if you keep your lamp lit now, your opportunity will come. In the Bhagavad Gita, the sixth chapter, Krishna promises every devotee, Arjuna, none who works for self-redemption will ever meet an evil destiny. Spiritual failure, though a deep disappointment, is always temporary. Eternal hellfire is but a projection of vindictiveness in the human mind. Thus, through Holy Scripture, God has spoken to mankind. Oh, oh. from eternity. This prayer, poem by Yogananda, I will be thine always. I invite you to take not only in with your ears, but your heart and mind and soul. <clears throat> I will be thine always. I may go far, farther than the farthest star, but I will be thine always. Devotees may come, devotees may go, but I will be thine always. I may bound over billows of many lives under sad, dark skies of loneliness, but I will be thine always. The whole world may ignore thee, engrossed as it is in thy gifts of money, power, and pleasure, mere playthings, but I will be thine always. Take everything from me, if thou wilt, but Lord, I will be thine always. Death, disease, and every imaginable trial may riddle and rend me, Yet, while the embers of memory still flicker, look into my dying eyes. They will mutely say, I will be thine always. My voice may grow feeble, fail, and forsake me. And yet with bursting heart and with silent voice of my soul, I will ever whisper to thee, my Lord, I am thine always. topic that Swamiji writes on today is poignant. What is it to fail spiritually? And in thinking about this a little bit, I came to the realization, or let's say the working theory, that spiritual failure is really an oxymoron. It's kind of like jumbo shrimp or crash landing. <laughs> I couldn't find better oxymorons, but you get the idea. Inasmuch as um, everything in the world really is spiritual, can be said to be spiritual, our failures too are spiritual in nature. But inasmuch as our prayer and our reading today and our own experience of the spiritual path is that we are children of God, that we are sparks of that divine consciousness, then we cannot fail spiritually. And this idea that we can somehow reach some dead end of failure is really impossible. In religion, I know Swami Kriyananda remarked in reference to this, at least I heard, 
in experiencing or viewing some beautiful art in Europe. Uh, I believe it was perhaps the Sistine Chapel in Italy that he said of Michelangelo's beautiful frescoes, referring to the ones where God is depicted as this judgmental or vindictive God that can really cast us into hellfire. He said, good art, bad philosophy. (laughs) This idea that God could somehow judge us or condemn us is anathema to us as devotees. It's just not right. But it's more complex than that. And in thinking more about this, I found it really helpful to think not only what is spiritual failure, and not as a standalone concept, but as the other side of the coin to that, what is spiritual success? What is it to succeed spiritually? And so, of course, I thought about the lives of the saints and of Swami Kriyananda. And Swamiji was rejected from SRF. More than that, he was cast out in an utterly terrible way. And it broke his heart. And his spiritual life, you could easily say, he failed. And yet, what did he do? He wasn't so buoyantly joyful that he just sallied forth, but he worked his way through it. His life was incredibly complex and controversial in some ways, but looking back through it, rereading recently, reading uh, Nayaswami Asha's Light Bearer, he was just a thousand percent for God the whole way. And that's what made it a spiritual success. Nothing else content-wise, really mattered. And so, spiritual success, or rather spiritual failure, let's say, is always going to be temporary for the devotee. And it can seem very real, and it can be real in many ways. I thought maybe I would look up some rags-to-riches stories of failure that were inspiring in the world, but I didn't get past a few names that were noteworthy which I'll share with you, folks, of course, like Albert Einstein, Thomas Edison, Oprah Winfrey, J.K. Rowling, Bill Gates. These guys are all failures, Steve Jobs. Every success, I think we could say with a high degree of accuracy or truth, is only built upon failures. Einstein himself, the mystical genius, said failure is just success in progress. And so, we can build upon our failures. They're intertwined, integral to one another. And so there's something to be said spiritually for just simply doing the best we can at any given moment. And that's enough for God. Complexities of karma will work themselves out from there. There is one story that came to mind is deeply inspiring to me from the Mahabharata. One of my favorite stories from the Mahabharata is that of Ekalavya. And Ekalavya was a forest dweller in the Mahabharata who, of low-born caste, nonetheless aspired to be a great warrior of the, like the Kshatriyas. But he could not be. He went to the greatest of gurus. He sought out Dronacharya, teacher and guru of the Pandavas, the very demigods of virtuousness and warfare and goodness. And he was rejected. They said, you cannot train with us. We wouldn't accept him. And so what did he do with this utter rejection and failure? He simply went back to his forest ashram where he lived. And he made a little clay murti, 
of Drona, his guru, and he worshipped it day in and out, and he trained tirelessly in the arts of war and archery. And through his devotion and through his steadfast training, he became the greatest of warriors, greater even than the peerless Arjuna, Drona's prized pupil. And the Pandavas themselves were out hunting one day nearby in the forest when they came upon him. Their dog, their hunting dog, had encountered Ekalavya training there in the forest and was barking at him. And Ekalavya was disturbed in his meditation, perhaps, or his training. And so, with a simple succession of arrows that he fired, he shot at the dog in such a way as to form a muzzle on the dog's snout without hurting him. And this unbelievable feat of archery was witnessed by the Pandavas when the dog returned to them. And they thought, my God, who could have done such a thing? And they encountered Ekalavya there. And of course, they had been with Drona when he was rejected as a student. And they were upset. And they said, how could you have become such a great archer? How have you attained this state? And Ekalavya said, through my guru's grace. And they said, but you're rejected. He said, here's my guru here in this Murti. And so they sought out Drona. Arjuna was especially furious. He said, he's even greater than I am. How could you train him as a disciple, guru? And Drona said, take me to him. And so Drona came and saw what had happened. And Drona said simply, Ekalavya, it's time for you to give me Guru Dakshina. And this is what the disciple gives in exchange for what the Guru has given him for his blessings and his grace. And Ekalavya, being utterly devoted, said, whatever you ask of me, Guru, it's yours. And the Guru asked him for the unthinkable offering for an archer, for the greatest archer who ever lived. He said, give me your right thumb. And without hesitation, Ekalavya took his hunting knife, this is the gruesome part, removed his thumb and offered it at the feet of his guru, lovingly. And that's the beautiful story of a disciple who failed, but nobody remembers him for his failure. He went on, I think, still to be among the greatest archers who ever lived without that right thumb. But it didn't matter a bit who he was or where he came from or what happened to him. His utter devotion to his guru assured his complete spiritual success. And the guru tested him in order to prove that. With our spiritual success and our failures, which paved the way, it's always temporary. And often it's only a lack of perspective, which I'll get to in a moment. But I had the thought and the phrase that, like a hyperbole, it's just like a hyperbolic oopsie sometimes, that we blow it on the spiritual path. And it's really not such a big deal. My friend recently told me this humorous anecdote, which actually really struck a chord with me on this. It's this three yogis that are up in the high mountains, and they're in deep seclusion and meditation. And hours and days pass in silence and deep stillness. And finally, something happens. A bird circles overhead and swoops down low over the yogis meditating on the ledge, and then sails off into the distance. Hours pass again, days in stillness, and the first yogi speaks. He says, a hawk. And then again, days pass in meditation and communion with God. And finally, the second yogi speaks up, and he says, no, 
an eagle. And then again, stillness. Days go by in meditation and quietude with God. And finally, the third yogi speaks up and says, if you two keep fighting, I'm out of here. <laughs> so, but really, in, in spiritual community and, and in friendships, even in relatively calm waters, you know, in harmonious waters, even a ripple sometimes seems like it washes over us and wants to drag us under. But we need a little perspective on the spiritual path. And we learn over time, we gain this perspective. I um, also thought of my son, Jay, who's four years old. Um, when he was maybe two or so, we were reading books, one of our favorite things. And this idea came up about perspective on some illustration or another. I don't know what it was, but it came, somehow this concept came about that this far-off mountain or this hot air balloon, let's say, was depicted in a, a way that it was, appeared small. And I said, well, that's because of perspective. And Jay's eyes widened, and he took it in. And some pages later, another thing came up. Oh, that's perspective. And so he took it in. And ever since then, Jay, in his wisdom, will be reading a book or in the car or flying in a plane you know, to visit relatives. And he'll remark on something, the moon or some trees, the little houses below us looking out the plane window. And he'll say with this air of wisdom, Dad, Perspective. <laughs> perspective. He's really got the concepts down. And like a child, we can gain perspective, really, on life and see it more from the eyes of God that whatever's happening to me or going on in the world around me is just happening in a little space of God's infinite love. And we may not be able to see all the way across the riverbank, let's say, if whatever is happening is just a stepping stone. But we can go a step ahead and a step ahead at a time. And sometimes we'll get the full, the full perspective on things. The other story that is really inspiring that came to me is this story from the life of the Buddha that Yogananda told. And he recounts this story of the Buddha who is resting by the river beneath a tree with his disciples. And he's approached by this woman, a courtesan, a beautiful woman. And is, this is alarming to the disciples who see this beautiful woman who approaches their guru. And she says to him, my beloved, I have come. Won't you hold me and touch me now? And they're really aghast that she would speak to a master this way, these renunciates. And they're even more alarmed when at first the Buddha replies to the woman, I see, yes, my beloved, you have come, but not now. Don't touch me now. Later I will come to you, and I will hold you. And so she leaves, and so their concern is abated, perhaps, but nonetheless, time passes, and a year or more goes by, and they're alarmed again, the disciples, when the Buddha, from a sudden inspiration and meditation, rises, and he says, my beloved is calling me now. I must go. I must go to her by the river. And so he goes to the same place. And there's the woman lying by the river. No longer is she beautiful to the outward appearance. She's covered in sores and disease and sickness has ravaged her. And then the Buddha kneels and holds her. And with his loving touch, she is healed. And he says, now, my beloved, 
I have come. And the disciples see, and the soul of this woman is touched, and she sees and goes on to become a great disciple of the Master. And so the complexities of fate and karma are not always ours to see, perspective or otherwise. But through our devotion, we can find our way to God. Devotion is really at the heart of this reading today from Rays to the One Light. And this parable of the foolish and the wise versions is very instructive for us as devotees. Um, Swami Kriyananda remarked on this really poignant and interestingly that tepidity or, or lukewarm devotion is often why devotees fall from the spiritual path. So it's not enough to be the average devotee. We have to be on fire for God in our meditation, in our chanting, in our prayers. Yogananda says prayer in which your very heart is burning for God is the only effectual prayer. And so we have to be on fire for God. Like it says in the Festival of Light, one of my favorite lines in this incredible ceremony is, as paraphrased from the Bible, to love God with all thy heart, with all thy mind, with all thy soul, and with all thy strength. And through this love for God, we can overcome any test or seeming failure. Um, Paramahansa Yogananda said, as long as you're making the effort, God will never, ever, ever let you down. And those are immortal words to us as devotees. And in the Bhagavad Gita, there's this quote that so many of us know and just can never hear too often. Give me, serve, give, says, give me devotion, give me, cling to me, give me lower service. But in this, if thy faint heart fails, give me thy failure. And so even failure is success when it's given to God. And Sister Gyanamata, the great saint and foremost female disciple of Yogananda, said, see nothing but your goal ever shining before you. And so just like that chant, pole star of my life, if we can just keep our sights set on God, we will get there. Yogananda also said, it doesn't matter, the true devotee would wait 200 lifetimes for God, if that's what it would take. And we have to have that willingness. We would accept that. I don't care if you come to me now, tomorrow, or in 200 lifetimes, Lord. I will be thine always. You know, the other thing about our failures and our mistakes is that that's not us. So often we identify or misidentify with our mistakes. And I had the thought just now, even the mistake of identifying with our mistakes is not us. <laughs> we just, we can't, no matter how hard we try, fail. It's just a temporary setback. And it can seem very real, but it's not. God is what's real in our lives. And like a compass, the needle just always has to go towards God. The other inspiration came to me from the life of St. Francis, which I'll share with you. And just a few stories that I've read from Saints That Move the World, a beautiful book. And in thinking about the lives of the saints recently, of Christ and the masters, 
and the saints is just that the inspiration and the, um, the instruction as devotees that we can draw from the lives of saints is as real and fresh in this very moment as if they were living amongst us. And in the life of St. Francis, early on in his spiritual life, he was living in this utter poverty, which he chose as part of his new spiritual path and expression. And um, early in the first winter, there were eight other brothers with him in this kind of experiment. And they were cast into just abject poverty at this point as winter set in. And they were even kicked out from the Lazar house where they lived outside Assisi with the sick and the poor and the dying. And so this was their first real test. And they just followed Francis, these eight brothers. And they found their way to this little shed by the river, which is called Rivo Torto, the crooked river, and this old shed where they made their home and their ashram. And so for a long time, they would just live and, and pray here. And cold and rain would just splash in and freeze them in this little shed. And they just followed Francis's lead. He just would sing and say, oh, brother, rain has come. And they just were filled with joy at Francis's joy. And they were hungry. They had no food. And the townspeople had even refused to give them alms to try to teach these ne'er-do-wells who just wanted to live in poverty. And so hunger gnawed at their stomachs. And and they followed Francis's lead. He said, keep quiet, Brother Hunger. We have something to discuss with Father. And they would pray to God, to the Heavenly Father, and sing to God. And they were uplifted, and they were fed by his love and joy that he shared with them. And it was at this point that the well-known story comes where a man and his donkey kicked them out. He, he said, I need this shed for my nag. And he, get out. And so, without any ego whatsoever, Francis went out into the cold, and the brothers followed. And this was what God was asking for them. And so Francis said, now it's time to preach. He said, we'll go forth in twos. And he sent them in the four directions, and they went to share God's love and God's word with people. But here's where it gets interesting. Shortly after, Francis went off by himself, and he had his first dark night of the soul. And he was up on a high mountain in a cave, and he was beginning to doubt everything he had given up to live for God in poverty. And we've all experienced this in some way, large or small. He was really wondering what it's all about, and he wasn't sure. And it was a very, very dark and difficult period for him. In this freezing, dark cave is when God came to him and showed him in a vision of light the future of the Franciscan order, which would eventually change the course of, of history, of world religion, and God's work on earth. And he showed him hundreds and then thousands upon thousands of brothers and sisters holding hands and rejoicing in living for God. And so Francis went out to the mouth of the cave, and there was a howling snowstorm. And he called out to the wind, keep quiet, brother wind, I have something to say. And the wind howled ever more loudly into his ears, and so he whispered. He whispered to his brothers. And through the power of God, they heard him in their ears and in their souls. And they came back from their preaching, 
shortly, and they all gathered back at Riva Torto, the shed. And it was here that Francis drafted the precepts for the Franciscan order. And they were to take this to the Vatican, to the Pope, um, to get his approval. And when they did, the Pope had Francis chased away as a vagabond from his terrace. And miraculously, soon thereafter, he somehow obtained an audience with the Pope, who more miraculously still confirmed um, an unlearned man, Francis, neither a monk nor a prior, uh, as the leader of the new Franciscan order. And he called the convening of the cardinals there. And they approved of the precepts of the Franciscan order, something totally unprecedented and impossible. And so they went back and founded um, St. Francis's work for men and eventually for women. And the final part of this story I wanted to share is kind of not directly related, but many years later, this same pope, who was known as a great pope, Pope Innocent III, he was on his deathbed. He was very sick and dying, and he was rumored that he had the plague, and so nobody would go near him. Only a couple of physicians would go near him, and everyone stayed out of his rooms. And only Francis would go in fearlessly with love and visit with the pope and pray with him there and kiss him on his deathbed. And that night, that very night when Francis had seen him, the Pope died, and he was left there, lying in state. And still, no one would go near him, except for thieves, because they were afraid of the plague. But the thieves stole his jewelry, they stole his red leather shoes and his cap, and all of his holy artifacts, and left him laying there. And again, nobody would go near, so they called Francis. And Francis came to the Pope, and there prayed for him once more for his soul, and he took off his own Franciscan cowl and put it on the Pope and said, Behold, the minor friar of our Lord. And so the great Pope Innocent III, who was known as the King of Kings, was buried in the Franciscan cowl. And Francis became the guiding light for the world, the greatest of Christ's saints. And we can learn from this and from the lives of all the saints that through humility, through devotion, through utter determination to live for God, we can overcome anything. And that's my prayer and my wish that in this spirit of Christ season now and on this World Brotherhood Day, that for my own seeking and just for all brothers and sisters, seeking spiritually, that come whatever may, failures or trials or stumble, trip, fall, utter seeming abysmal failure, that we never, ever, ever give up and that we always live for God and share him with all.
Just so. 